Welcome back, everyone. This is Eric Ellison with the Digital Education Podcast. This is really a return to pre-COVID podcasting for me. I've done all of these short series over the last year and a half, whether it be lessons from Lasso or Stop One Thing or What's Next, and, and just even doing the ongoing monthly series of becoming more human as we talk to educators and we talk to them about their stories of how students have impacted their lives. But I'm returning to what is much more normal for me where I get to talk to innovators in education and have conversations. And today I'm with Adam Carter. Adam is executive director of Marshall Streets Initiatives with Summit Public Schools, where he's also been an English teacher, uh, director of professional development, chief academic officer. And over the last number of years, he's been a, a, a public school teacher in the Bay Area where I'm at. And then he's also taught overseas as well. And so Adam, thanks for being with us first, but I'm gonna throw you this first question and let you roll with it. How did you go from being an English teacher to then kind of having those conversations and questions and that, that, that the interest in innovation in the education system and just change in our and how we do school. Well, thank you for having me. First of all, Eric, um, I'm really glad to be here. And uh, and yeah, I'm happy to share that that personal journey. Um, so, <clears throat> uh, I began teaching at a, a comprehensive public high school. Um, really, really good, solid school. Um, diverse student body uh, had a strong culture. And about two thirds of the way in the school year, I remember having a, um, my evaluator in the room. And at the end of the class, um, he was like, well, that seemed like a good class. I was like, I don't know. I, there's always a few kids in the room. I just never feel like I'm meeting their needs. And um, he's like, well, you're being a little hard on yourself. I mean, you gotta think of teaching as a marathon, not a sprint. And um, there's always gonna be students whose needs you're not able to meet. And uh, I, I was like, okay, I really started thinking about it. I had never worked harder in my life. I mean, I was working nonstop as a first year teacher as is common. And um, I remember going home and it really was like sitting with me. I'm like, here's a school that everybody, when I got a job there said, oh, you're so lucky, lucky to be able to work at that school. It's your first gig. And to hear from an administrator that yeah, you're not, you're just not going to meet all, all kids needs. Like you're just not going to be able to effectively reach everyone. And it was really bothering me. And I was really considering quitting. I went to a mentor at the school who's a fantastic English teacher and shared the story with him. And he said, you know what, like, I'm not recommending this, but I know this person who's starting this charter school. And given what you're saying, like, you may just want to talk to her. I'm not recommending it. I'm just saying. And uh, so my first question was like, what is a charter school? I had no idea what, what a charter school was. And then I ended up meeting, um, her name is Diane Tavener. She's still the CEO at Summit. And um, in this conversation, it was, it was so clear to me that we both had the same goal, which was how do we create a school in which there are no cracks to slip through, in which every student who comes in the door, you're making this covenant with them and their family that you're all in this together, we are going to work with you to reach your own goals, to, um, to be successful in your own terms. And so that was, um, to answer your question, sort of my introduction to moving from a classroom teacher who was at a great school in many regards, uh, enjoying teaching, 
busy like all first year teachers are. Um, so then having essentially another first year by helping start Summit, which is a, at the time was a single charter school in Redwood City, California, with an extremely diverse student body, um, racially, socioeconomically diverse, religiously, linguistically, like truly diverse student body. And then um, helping grow that school into a school that was um, sort of objectively successful on standardized test measures, which we were in the early days of No Child Left Behind then. So we had to be successful in those measures, but then really was focusing well beyond things like test prep towards social emotional learning, uh, helping support students in making the um, transition out of high school, like not thinking of graduation as the end of the road for us, but looking well beyond graduation and um, trying to think about how do we meet the needs of every student every day. So, so let me ask you that question. When you think back, because you mentioned a number of different things and you mentioned No Child Left Behind in particular. And, and I remember, you know, especially being a young teacher in those days. Um, and, and I, you know, and I made some transitions. I made some changes even at the same time that, that in many ways made no sense to the traditional kind yeah. of public school teacher career path. Mm -hmm. um, what, what's something that you look back at and say, you know what? We got that right, um, you know, as you were thinking forward and as you were thinking, you know, in the future. Um, and I love the fact that you're trying to and, and you say this, you're trying to create a, a system where students didn't fall through the cracks, because that's what I kind of, I think, came to accept in some ways that the system that I was in, it just had cracks and you had to catch as many as you could and then just let the rest of it filter out from there. Um, was there something when you look back at those early days or maybe those first 10 years where it's like, yeah, we got that right and we got to consistently double down on that and keep going forward with it? Yeah, I'll mention two things. I think, because um, it's a great question, I think they both, they both are applicable today, even though the context, you know, 20 something years ago was obviously different. Um, thing one was we invested deeply in relationships first and foremost. And so I don't even think we covered what we think of as academic content for the first two to four weeks of school. What we focused on was culture. And not only that, we focused first on adult culture and then on student culture because you have to practice what you preach. So we figured we were in a system in which, you know, room 101 operating completely independently from room 102, even if they're both independently exceptional classrooms, uh, that that's part of the problem, that kids are having to relearn a whole different system every time they walk into every room. We're high school, so, um, so you're going to five plus classrooms a day. And so what we need to do is put the student's experience and needs first and foremost, not the sort of disjointed stylistic wants and preferences of, of, of adults. So we all got together and started talking about what's going to be our grading system, what's going to be our assessment philosophy, um, how are we going to give feedback to kids? How often are we going to give feedback to kids? What's, what's really like a, at a principles level, like what do we believe in? And once we all like got to know each other on that level as professionals and started trusting each other as professionals and seeing each other's strengths and weaknesses, we were able to work as a team in service of kids rather than as a bunch of sort of independent contractors uh, who had like you know, room 101 and room 102 and kids had to do the translation. So that's one. And I think the systematic structure we put in place was mentoring, ensuring that every student had one adult 
who they saw every day, who knew them and their family deeply and was the point of contact for all things school with the student and their family. So that we definitely got right. We're still doing it today and many other schools are too. And it was not just advisory, it was mentoring. Um, so then the, the second thing we got right is more highly contextual to you know, the context of 2002, 2003 is the most logical pivot schools made when NCLB went in place, No Child Left Behind is to start just like reorienting all their curriculum and really all their instruction towards what was measured on the test. And this really came to a head in like 2010-ish where you walk into 100 classrooms in the US, 99 of them, you're gonna see this drill and kill nightmare of, it's not even education, it's just, it's test prep. And uh, we made a choice that we were gonna do two hours a year of test prep and that's it, <laughs> two hours a year. And we were a new school where the stakes couldn't be higher, where if we were getting at that time it's the API in California, um, the progress indicator, if we were to get say like a three, two, three being you're in the bottom 30% of schools in terms of your scoring, two being of like schools, like similar schools, you're in the bottom 20%. If we were to get something like that, we probably couldn't get our charter um, renewed. but. We said, forget all that. Let's just do good teaching. Let's understand the standards and bring them to life for kids. I didn't never teach Greek and Roman mythology, but almost every other English teacher I knew had to teach Greek and Roman mythology because it was in the California state standards for ninth grade English. And really, it just doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter. If it fits, great. But we are not going to have a bunch of kids trying to learn for months on end, like, who Zeus is. <laughs> and so we really focused on skills, project-based learning, mentoring, like the stuff that we all wanted to focus on and kids needed anyway, and where the standards could like really bring to life some of the skills and knowledge we were focused on, um, we would absolutely integrate them. But we did not do test prep. We did not do bubble tests. We did not pivot our curriculum or instruction um, towards the shallow learning that was largely incented by those early standardized tests. Um, and I thought that was a really daring move on our, um, I'd say largely the principal's part because it's the administrator who feels that most acutely, those test scores. And she was willing to be a leader who stood by some values and said, if we do right by students, we're gonna do well on the tests. And so before the week before those tests came, we did two hours of test prep and that's it, just so that they knew the format of the test and were comfortable with it. Beyond that, we just tried to make sure they came to school fed and they slept well and we didn't stress them out. And within our second year, we were a 10-10 on the API, which means we're in the top 10% of schools in the state of California and of similar schools, which were like high poverty schools um, serving large percentages of students of color. Um, we were in the top 10% of those schools as well. So. Um, it was a strategy that ended up playing out um, effectively for us. Well, it's, it's interesting even that you say that because in those days, and I remember it very much, and you know, it was that idea of um, it was either or, right? It was either you could do this or this, you know, and, and especially the high pressure or the high stakes in regards to tests. Like what is, is when you think about innovation over these last, you know, 10 to 20 years, you know, what, what's something that you're looking at now that you just feel from those days and from those experiences is just left undone? And maybe that's what you're doing with Marshall Street initiatives, but what's something that it's like, 
it's just saying, hey, we got to start or maybe even you say, hey, we just kind of we, we just got it wrong, you know, 10 years ago. But but here's a reshift or here's a rethink or here's a direction that we we have to continue on down this road for the, the that long term and overall benefit of, of kids in schools. Yeah. The, the first thing that comes to mind is um, in the context of like that to the early 2000s. Um, the problem we were most trying to solve with a new school was access to college. And, and by it, new school, I'm talking a new high school. So in the community we are served in Redwood City, uh, if you were a Latino student in 2003, you were in the majority of the district. Um, and yet you only had about a 30% chance of even getting what's called the A to G requirements to even getting the curriculum, the courses you need to be eligible for the California State Universities and for the university, the UC system. So it was a systematic disservice to the majority of students um, in the district schools at that time. And so in that context, we had this equity imperative, which was we want all students to be able to attend a four-year school. If that's in line with their goals, then we're going to work with you and your family to make sure that you're on that path. So I think of it as a noble goal. And with 20 years of hindsight, I think that a laser focus on college acceptance um, was, was evolutionarily maybe the right thing to do back then. But I think we need to move well beyond uh, that metric as the one that dictates success for a secondary school system. So, um, I think our first evolution on that was looking at our own graduates in around 2011 and saying, okay, well, it's been from our first graduating class about six years since they, um, since they graduated, Where, where's everyone now? And we found that um, about 55% of our first graduating class had gone on and had either gotten or was about to get a degree from a four-year school in six or fewer years being sort of the established metric. And we said, okay, so how do we feel about that number of 55%? On one hand, it's about twice the national average of high school students who go on to attain a four-year degree in six or fewer years. So by that number, we're like, well, we doubled the national average. But when we dug in, we knew every kid. We knew them deeply. We, were, we had mentored and taught every student in that group, and it's not a large group, under 100 students. So we then just started talking with them and we realized that students who are on free lunch plans were much less likely to have been in that 55% who graduated. Um, student, Latino students were less likely to have been uh, graduates in, that, in um, six or fewer years from college. And so we saw that the problem was bigger than just a good high school experience. And in some cases, we found that students were kind of like, they felt almost guilty that they hadn't either attended college or, um, or stayed with college. And we didn't want a culture in which we were saying it's college or bust. We really wanted kids to have exposure to a lot of different post-secondary pathways. So our first evolution really was to look at who's graduating and how do we make our schools better for all students, not just to attend college, but to graduate from college. And then the iteration we're in now is changing it from college readiness to a thing that's kind of nerdily called concrete next step. So meaning there's a variety of pathways that you can take after high school 
college or at least learning with some sort of a degree or certificate attached should definitely be a door you leave open. And so in no time do we want to send the message that like, don't worry about higher education. Um, what we want to do is put higher education in context. We have a lot of students who, um, you know, need to work. They, they need to work after high school. And going to a full-time four-year college in which they're accruing debt off the, get, off the bat um, is not the best choice. And more piecing together um, a purposeful pathway is, is better for them. It's harder for us to present those pathways because there aren't a lot. There's the military, there's four-year college. And then in terms of two-year college, what we, we used to look at the numbers and say, don't send anybody to two-year college because on average, there's under a 20% chance that they graduate first-time, full-time um, community college grads in the Bay Area end up graduating in three or fewer years. But that obscures the fact that like a lot of people are really piecing together community college. All community colleges are not created equal and all programs in community colleges are not created equal. So what we're really trying to do right now is map the supply side of post-secondary options, um, look at them through the lens of our students and say, which of these is gonna lead you towards a pathway that has a fulfilling family sustaining wage at the end of it? Where it's like, maybe you get a certificate in the next nine months. And then from there you get a more advanced certificate then you get a degree, then you, and all the time you're working and you're working locally and it's enough to be able to sustain an apartment. And you know, there's a growth path there and it's aligned to the student's understanding of self and the problems they wanna solve. So that's part of the place we're at. The other is to try and think about, are there other actual sort of supply side options that we could create or try to piece together. And, and the world is here as well. There's a recent report last month by um, JFF Jobs for the Future called The Big Blur, and which is essentially making the same case that um, this it's, it doesn't serve kids well to graduate from high school and then see that industry is disconnected from community colleges, is disconnected from four years, disconnected from K-12. And that we really need to start drawing together around the student, these really disparate systems that have very different incentives. Um, I think that's a really interesting approach. I think there's also interesting approaches around groups like InPower, who are essentially working on federal and state apprenticeship models. And so it doesn't close the door to higher education, but it gives you a credential that has market value in about nine, I'm sorry, less than nine months. Um, and from there, you're able to get a good job in an industry in which you have growth trajectory. And then from there, you can certainly pursue community colleges, baccalaureate degrees, whatever. But I just think we need to start expanding the options for kids so that they're not just full-time four-year school where you're definitely accruing debt, but you're not sure if this is actually gonna lead you in the direction you wanna go in professionally or personally. Um, we, we need to do better on, on that sort of what happens next or what we call concrete next step. It's amazing because I mean, you know, last 10 years, you know, I worked kind of as a college counselor um, before I made transition recently. And, and you could see that heavy emphasis when I first started in that kind of role, you know, in 2011. And then over the last few years, I mean, and, and I worked in San Jose at a fairly affluent school where kids had plenty of opportunities where the pressure was culturally to go to college. You know, but yet you're watching and I watch kids like I don't need college. Right. They had the skills, they had the abilities or they had the interest 
to get going further faster. And then I also look back even at my personal experience where I, I came from a low income family on the west side of Chicago and had the opportunity in a sense to work my way through college as a painter, as a carpenter, you know, and, and having like skill sets that then led me. And the reason why I got my teaching credential was completely on my dad that said, Hey, listen, get your teaching credential just in case. Yeah. You know, and so it was always about, hey, you're going to, you know, you, you get a job, you work your way through, you get this education. And I had a life transforming education, but you get that certificate that then creates opportunities. And lo and behold, for me, I had no interest in being a teacher, but then became one and have loved it ever since. But I, I'm wondering, even as you think about the student side of things, because I think this is something I've, I've been wondering about, and I know it's something that you we had the opportunity to talk about a little bit too, is what about the educator side of things, right? Because, because the educator profession too, in that same way, has been very traditional for a long time, right? You're a teacher or an administrator. There's not this kind of fluid and, you know, kind of creative way of doing both of intersecting work and life, or maybe being a a, a manager administrator for a while, but then going back into the classroom and, you know, we look at how raises and salaries. I, and then we also look at the, the disparate nature of, I think, probably diversity within our profession as well. Like, how do you think, even as you think about that on the student side of things, how are you thinking about that and wondering about that from just a professional standpoint? Yeah. Oh, Eric, that's a great question. That's, uh, I mean, <clears throat> One way is that um, like, there's this cascade effect of practicing what you preach. And so I've always believed, uh, you mentioned I was a director of professional development. Like what I'm about to say should not, it shouldn't even be worth saying, but it still is, which is uh, if you're going to ask your teachers to be project-based learning teachers, for instance, you need to do your trainings in a project-based learning pedagogical environment that has to guide it. And so really this belief that there's student learning practices and there's adult learning practices and those two things are very different is, is baloney. And so one of the earliest things is, well, we, if we say this is an instructional model is best for kids, then we use it with adults with some variations because we don't have as much time you know, that's one big one, actually. And, but still, we should be looking at competencies, for instance, rather than just seat time. Basic stuff, basic stuff. So that's one. I think more importantly, or more, more tactically, um, educator development is a place that's very near to my heart. And it's a place that um, at Marshall, Marshall Street Initiatives, I'm going to call it Marshall. At Marshall, it's one of the um, first initiatives we began was a really one of, one of its kind in the state of California, teacher residency model. So we currently operate the only um, pre-service teacher certification program in the state of California that is run by a local education agency and not an institute of higher ed. So why that matters is this. We are beholden to the schools in which we place our residents, our pre-service teachers not to um, sort of a university hierarchy or infrastructure. And we of course cannot convey master's degrees or anything like that. So we are solely focused on ensuring that you are going to be an excellent teacher for a student-centered school model 
at the end of your year with us. That's it. And so as a result, what is it? It's an apprenticeship, essentially. It's a, res it's a true residency. Four days of a week, each teacher is on site with a master teacher. We call them a cooperating teacher who is um, not only do they meet sort of the state criteria, but who we have interviewed and see that they have an alignment of principles. Their classroom is one that is um, that counters racism. It, their classroom is one that um, empowers students to be self-directed learners. And that really focuses on rich cognitive skills and in which they try to get to know every student as an individual. So it's like personalized. If those are the schools we partner with and those are the teachers we partner with. And the good news is there's a lot of them. <laughs> there's a lot of amazing educators out there. And so we're able to place our residents in a place that is um, really fertile ground for becoming a great teacher. And then in one day of the week, uh, they're pulled out to do essentially coursework, but it's not the type of coursework where we just sit back and like read Foucault and, um, and, um, and, and Freire and all that. Like we do do that, but it's really about reflective practice. And so um, we certainly meet all of the, the TPEs, which are the standards for the teaching profession in California, but <clears throat> we do it in a context of practice and where theory is never disjointed from practice. And essentially what we're doing is, one of my old professors was Linda Darling-Hammond, who's now um, the state superintendent for education, or the, um, that's not true, the, uh, the chair of the um, California Department of Ed. Uh, that is not true either. The, uh, it's the, the board, the Board of Education for California, uh, get there eventually. And what we've done is essentially just put her theory into practice with this program and um, to, not have instructors and supervisors, but to merge those into people who are supporting candidates who know the theory, but are really about applying theory to practice. Um, who are minimizing the gap between what is said in the classroom and what is done in the school community. We're only partnering with excellent schools, school leaders and teachers, and then helping those places grow their own teachers. So we're also taking to your point about the hom homogeneity of the teaching profession, um, you know, eight, about 80% of teachers are white, about 80% of teachers are female. And yet we know that um, students benefit from having uh, educators who have similar life experiences as them. And so we're working with districts and charter groups to grow their own teachers from their communities. And our cohorts are always over 60% teachers of color, um, over 40% male. So um, we're really trying to create more equitable schools and pipelines into education. Uh, while at the same time, just providing access, um, low cost, high quality access um, to, to candidates as well in a totally different model that's really mirrored on student-centered best practices. So, so let me ask you one question because I could go forever yeah, and especially too. your interests. Like I, it's like so much similar to my interests and, and you're doing so many cool things that I just love. Um, but that question is, and maybe to, to close us out with this conversation, because there, there's so much more to get to, but we have, especially if you think back to yourself, you know, in, in those early 2000s, as a, as a young teacher, maybe a little bit of that dissatisfaction or a little bit of that wondering of like, there's got to be a better way. Um, and you were working your tail off, right? We've got a lot of young and new teachers who are idealistic, maybe like we were. Um, ambitious like we were, um, but are coming into the profession during this COVID time. 
right, which I think is exhausting. I have a number of former students who are in it and they're wondering, is this for me, right? Um, similar as what, you know, sounded like for you, but for different reasons. What would you say to that young professional, that young teacher that says, hey, you know what, 20 years later, when I look back, you know, here's the encouragement to keep after it, or here's the encouragement to keep wondering or exploring, or here's the encouragement to take that big leap of, of faith in a lot of ways and go do something completely, you know, that you'd never heard of before. Like, what would you tell somebody right now? Um, I guess like, well, I guess I'd say two things. I mean, and maybe they're cliche, but, um, but I think one is that um, public education remains, it remains the path to touching the lives of the next generation. And I, I, I truly believe that. I do not know how to better convey a sense of values and respect and important skills that's going to make our world a better or a worse place as this next generation is set to confront a lot of problems that are, are novel. And truly, I mean, I, again, I feel corny saying it, but I think like the future of, of the world rests on this next generation uh, because of the sheer magnitude of the problems that they're going to be solving, whether they like it or not, whether they know it or not. And, you know, it is the most important way to invest your life in supporting our next generation. So that's sort of like the big abstract one, which everybody has on Teach to Change the World keychains already. Um, but I believe it. I wouldn't still be doing it if I didn't believe it. Uh, I think that means I'm still optimistic and, <laughs> and hopefully ambitious, so hoping not to be past tense on those. Um, I think the second is, uh, the beauty of teaching, like being in the classroom, and the thing I miss the most is that like improvisational, all the planning in the world, like what is it Mike Tyson said, um, you know, everybody has a plan to get punched in the face, like you show up in the, um, in the classroom, and it can feel like a punch in the face, but after a while it actually feels invigorating, like it is, uh, it is how things are happening in a dynamic that you can't anticipate fully. And it really is about shaping people's lives in that moment of improvisation. And I miss it. I love that. Uh, it's one of the reasons all my friends who are teachers last year really struggled in an online environment because you didn't get that sort of dynamic, that interaction, that individual and group uh, mixing. But now that we're starting to come back, it's only going to be more and more in person. And uh, to just lean into that and to not let anybody say that, um, you need to know the right way to do things before you try things. I mean, teaching as an experimental uh, profession is the best. And what works for one class isn't going to work for another, or works for one kid isn't going to work for another. So just trying stuff. Um, you just, I felt like I learned more teaching than I could learn in any other profession ever. So being a young teacher is being a learner in an intense environment, making more decisions that are more critical to more people's lives than any other mid-20s profession could ever allow you to have. And, and I think that's really hopeful. Um, and I guess the last thing would be schools are really, really different. Like there is no standard school. And just because one school may be burning you out, I, like I've said, I've worked at schools that people are like, you're so lucky to work there. I worked at an international school where everybody said, oh my gosh, I can't believe your first international gig was that school. 
And I did not like it. It was not for me. And then I moved to a different school, which I wouldn't have anticipated I loved. And I loved it. And Summit, I loved Summit. I love Summit. Like, I do believe that um, schools aren't all the same. And uh, it may be that it's a match. Like, if something's not working, it truly may be try a different place, um, ideally at the end of the year. <laughs> um, and uh, so that you can keep kids at the center. Um, that, that, like, before just throwing in the towel, it may really be a match thing. And sometimes the best schools just aren't the best school for you. And um, and so those are the three things I guess I would introduce, um, hoping that like we need more great teachers who are committed and kids truly, it's, you don't know in the moment and you don't even always know at the end of the year, but like when you do have at least 20 years of, of some hindsight, you're able to see how kids have evolved and, um, see the like difference that the true difference that you were able to make in those small ways over the course of a year or four years or however long you're there that truly change the trajectory of their lives in meaningful ways and change the trajectory of your own life in meaningful ways. So, um, so yeah, I don't think there's anything more important. Adam, this is incredible. So much, you know, great wisdom and knowledge, but then just, you know, hopefulness and, you know, being a 24 year educator now, I mean, I'm still hopeful. I'm still excited. And thank you for, for sharing your hope and excitement too with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Eric.